Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. And today we're going to talk about wokeness, but not in the usual dismissive mocking way. Wokeness usually is kind of a punchline. It's a term we use to describe those who are performatively progressive and perhaps even insincere. But my guest today is someone who takes the idea of wokeness seriously, because he sees it not so much as an ideological movement, but as a kind of strategy that well-educated upper-middle-class people are increasingly using as a way to generate and occupy high-paying jobs as consultants, communicators, equity and diversity specialists, human resource managers, and educators. In this view, wokeism isn't a manifestation of left-wing political thought because it isn't really about helping workers or the downtrodden. Rather, it's more like an enabling creed that helps people who are already privileged justify their increased influence and income within lucrative white-collar sectors. This was the subject of my guest Malcolm Shayuna's article entitled Wokeism, the Highest Stage of Managerialism, which appeared in the spring 2022 edition of City Journal. Mr. Shayuna, whose intellectual roots are in Marxism, by the way, spoke to me last week over Skype from his offices in Uppsala, Sweden. Here are excerpts from our conversation. One thing you mentioned early on is you talk about how traditionally the nations of Scandinavia, I think Sweden in particular, has been held out by the left as being much more progressive than the United States. But could you describe a little bit how maybe in the last decade or so things have been flipped certainly when it comes to the cultural sphere and I guess the managerial sphere, as a result of, of wokeism? The sort of ideal of Sweden in the minds of people in America, in North America, is actually kind of interesting because, again, maybe in the 70s, the sort of hugely progressive character or like, you know, progressive here in, in terms of being ahead of the curve, of like the Swedish welfare state was still true. But in the 90s and early 2000s, I don't think there were that many big differences between like the French welfare state or the Canadian welfare state or the Swedish welfare state. But your question was about the sort of interaction between wokeism, which we always assume as some sort of driver of socialist progressive policies and so on. And so you would think that a country like Sweden, even though it's nowhere near as unique in terms of having a welfare state, that having more of a welfare state would correlate with more progressivism in the sort of social sphere. It's not borne out by evidence today. During the 2010s, I guess, beginning in 2009 or so, like you really saw a slow process that then accelerated of the US and I guess the Anglosphere in general, accelerating past what is considered at the bleeding edge of, of radicalism in, in Sweden, for example. Could you maybe just give our listeners 
an example of the kind of policy or idea that has become mainstream in progressive American circles, but which has no constituency in Sweden? We can start with abortion. I posted a, a handy chart of the cutoff point for abortion on demand, where you don't have to state the reason. You don't have to secure some sort of uh, waiver or exception. Because everyone in Sweden sort of thinks that, well, Sweden is the most progressive country in the world, so obviously we have the most generous rules ever. And in Sweden, in case anyone doesn't know, generally speaking, you can get an abortion without having to state a reason up until the 18th week. And everyone in Sweden thinks that this is super progressive and like Americans will just sort of marvel at this and go, oh my God, those crazy Swedes, 18 weeks, how do they do it? But in reality, the standard sort of cutoff point was around week 24, 22 to 24 in the US. Some US states have basically more or less selective abortion up until week 40. Um, there's a couple of states like that. I can't think of any one of the people I know and knew in the left who would ever advocate for that sort of unrestricted abortion. People find that disgusting over here. Like they uh, have this self-image of being super radical, but in reality, they're kind of stodgy old social conservatives. This is not a live issue in Sweden. And sure, you can argue that abortion is kind of a special case because, you know, it, it, it's, it's complicated. But if you think about something that should be a bit less of a socioeconomic can of worms, the line on trans issues in Sweden is a lot less radical than in the U.S., and in fact, there's no way you could have something like, you know, CRT in Swedish schools. You mean a critical race theory? Yes, exactly. Like if you actually try to devise a curriculum where you would sort of separate different kids into like racial affinity groups on the premise that, well, you know, people that have a similar race, they should be playing together, uh, as, as the Swedish would say, uh, Lika barn leka best, which directly translated means something like, you know, similar kids should play together. Like if you tried something like that in Sweden, people would be appalled. Like there's no constituency for that. And, you know, the left is not really pushing for it either. So all of these super radical issues that are really polarizing the U.S. today are not in any sort of similar way polarizing in Sweden. If you, if you rewind the tape 15 years, this was not the case. But today, it's just impossible to argue that Sweden stands at some sort of progressive forefront. From my vantage point here in Canada, North America generally, many progressives just seem not to care at all about the working class unless their Uber is late or their Amazon shipment doesn't come, in which case they're enraged at the working class. Uh, but they're, they primarily express progressive politics through hashtags, identity, land acknowledgements, obscure theories of gender, that sort of thing. Is what you're describing here a kind of redirect of what it means to be a leftist? One potential hypothesis here would be that, okay, the fact that Sweden is not like super um, pushing the envelope in terms of, you know, having drag queens escort kindergartners to and from school or whatever. This could imply that, well, the Swedes are still stuck on, you know, union rights or whatever. And so they haven't really taken the plunge. But this is not actually the case. 
in fact, uh, a friend who recently uh, left the Swedish left party, Vänsterpartiet, uh, gave me uh, a sort of sit rep about what is sort of being pushed inside of the party. And if you look at some a district like the district in Stockholm, they are straight up um, at this moment in time trying to copy over American indigenous land acknowledgements about you know stealing um, rightful Stockholm clay from the the ancestral Sami people, which, in case anyone isn't familiar, is a indigenous northern people who really don't like Stockholm. And if you could find archaeological evidence that the Sami people used to live in Stockholm, they would probably break into the museum or, or whatever and destroy it because it would be seen as sort of insulting. Um, they don't really want Stockholm land acknowledgements, but, but the leftists do really want to sort of get something going here. But there's really no enthusiasm either from the Sami people or from anyone else. So um, you could really say that um, the Swedish political scene among the progressives is really, it, it's not different in, in terms of the actual ideas that are being embraced. Not really. It's just a difference of, of, of energy level and urgency. There was long a view that the vanguard of the left would, as Lenin and Trotsky and Buchanan purported to do step into the shoes of, of the urban proletariat and, and lead them. One of your theses is that they're no longer really interested in doing that. They're basically looking to find relevance and jobs for themselves because you have this uh, bloated cadre of liberal arts majors who their path to control and prestige in society is finding an ideology that allows them to intermediate in terms of the distribution of resources. You rely greatly on the work of James Burnham specifically his 1941 book, The Managerial Revolution. Could you explain a little bit about what Burnham argued there and how it relates to what you're seeing now in terms of wokeism? Burnham was at one point a Trotskyist. His ideas since leaving, you know, the, the iron science um, were in some ways a continuation of old ideas in, in many ways. So what Burnham started out doing immediately after rejecting uh, the Marxist eschatology, you might even call it, was to say that, well, okay, Marx and the left more generally may be correct that we are seeing a sort of historical transformation of capitalism through the means of class struggle and so on. But it's not necessarily the one that uh, socialists think it is, which is that, well, you know, workers are going to supplant capitalists. We're going to move to a post-capitalist system, which will be um, marked by the domination of the proletariat, a.k.a. socialism or communism. What Burnham thought he saw in the 40s was the U.S. slowly moving to a post-capitalist system, yes, but one that would be dominated not by proletarians, but by managers. What was becoming clear, at least to him, was that the Great Depression and the Second World War turbocharged this process. The sort of locus of control in a large firm, in a corporation, was moving away from, you know, owner-operators, the capitalist 
the guy in the top hat who sort of founded the company, who knew how to set up a production line for cars and so on, and, and could take a direct hand in the business. The function of running a company and the function of owning a company were becoming completely separate. One of the things that Barnham discussed was the fact that, well, this new class of managers would need some sort of ideology to call their own. The model of the Alfred Nobel or the Henry Ford or whatever, that stresses a couple of things, like the primacy of individual initiative, the primacy of property rights, the primacy of... It was a somewhat libertarian approach. Exactly. Because, I mean, if you were Henry Ford or Alfred Nobel, you had nothing to gain from not being able to control the Nobel Dynamite Company or the Ford Motor Company. But today, what you see instead is all of these small civil wars playing out inside of a lot of companies that employ... Well, you give an example. Let's, Let's talk about examples. You talk about Activision Blizzard. Yes. Activision Blizzard is the name of a publishing company, and it's also the name of a game development studio. It's a result of a merger between the studio Blizzard and the publisher Activision. But anyway, it's all started with a accusation of a bad workplace environment at the game development studio, which is Blizzard, but confusingly named Activision Blizzard today. But this quickly snowballed from a couple of people making a, an accusation of frat boy culture. Like one of uh, claims was that male employees would go into the breastfeeding room and stare at the female employees as they breastfed their kid. Which sounds like a legitimate, a legitimate grievance. Yes, I mean, in so if that happened, that is, that is something I think that everyone that agrees shouldn't happen. Like, that's not just a microaggression. That's... that's just very weird. It's just the sort of discrepancy between the accusation and the sought after remedy. Because if you have something like that, you know, guys going into staring at people breastfeeding, you can fire the people who don't respect basic social convention. But the demands were not that these people really be fired. The demands were ultimately that Activision Blizzard should turn over a lot of executive control in terms of hiring and firing and setting salaries and so on to basically like outside NGOs. You kind of wonder at that point, what does this have to do with um, sexual harassment? And now a message from one of our sponsors, BetterHelp Online Therapy. So the pandemic is ending, and maybe you're one of the many people who expected that as soon as things got back to normal, you'd be feeling back to normal too. If not, it could be because you've gotten burned out without even knowing it these last few years. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment or fatigue, and more generally, it can include no longer feeling as much joy or satisfaction in the things that you usually love doing, such as, oh, I don't know, writing or podcasting. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, and you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. So give BetterHelp a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com 
slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. This is where we get into the managerial class. The government got involved, regulators got involved, the media got involved. Exactly, yes. This isn't just a bunch of diversity consultants. This is the kind of thing which I made your essay convincing to me. You really brought to life this sort of web of, of managerial technocrats, government regulators. Some of them call themselves consultants. Some of them call themselves maybe activist shareholders, people who, who run media organizations, NGOs, <laughs> social media thinkfluencers. And I guess maybe this is a sort of force that Marx, who very much saw things as capital versus labor, might not have anticipated, and which Lenin didn't anticipate, because, of course, there's this subplot after the Russian Revolution where Lenin and his minions have to hire back a lot of the technical factory managers that they had originally fired. After a couple yeah. of months, they said, well, we need people to run factories. But in those days, maybe it was a technical skill that was the basis of the managerial claim to power. Is it correct to say that now it's more of a moral claim? Yeah, exactly. I originally started use the Activision Blizzard as a really good example of the sort of discrepancy between the skills needed to run a company and the skills prized by this clause. This is a phenomenon that maybe Marx and maybe Adam Smith wouldn't have anticipated that it's not the customer agitating here. It's not the yeah. owner of capital that's agitating here. It's not really the state. I mean, although there is some threat of lawsuit here. It's essentially this kind of nebulous third managerial force that manifests itself in part weaponizing social media, presumably, that kind of stands apart from classical theories of how economies work and the incentive structure of corporations. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're a corporation, you're going to say, I don't really care about the gender at all of game developers. If we could hire Bangladeshi women to make the next StarCraft and, you know, gamers would be happy about that. Let's do it. Gold power. But if men only play these games, more or less, and there's only male developers, like, whatever, like, just get it done. There's been so many controversies in, in the area of, like, video games, because it's such a gender-segregated market. There are some games where, like, probably the majority of the consumer base is, is women, but this is generally mobile games and so on. And then there are genres where there's, like, Maybe one woman on the planet Earth who plays these games. So you have a line here. Like the managerial ideology that Burnham anticipated, wokeness both asserts a wide variety of rights that supersede ownership yes. and insists upon the creation of a permanent cast of managers to monitor the implementation of these rights. I mean, I would argue that wokeness works better when it's unfettered by market forces, which is why universities government agencies, activist groups uh, here in Canada, the literary and art sector, which don't really generate much revenue, but is essentially um, rent-seeking in terms of government grants and that sort of thing. Wokeness has become extremely powerful in those sectors because you don't have the countervailing forces of, of capitalism. But it is linked to capitalism in the sense, and you describe it, a lot of well-educated people who are trying to avoid downward mobility in their own lives and, and are looking for status and relevance and a paycheck, to a certain extent, you don't use these words, you describe wokeness as a kind of um, upscale welfare program, churning out all kinds of consultants and experts and so forth. You also contrast it with Sweden, which kind of makes this make-work aspect of life more explicit. And in a way, you, you almost endorse it. 
I guess is more honest. Could, could you describe the equivalent depoliticized make work system for college educated people in Sweden looks like? Yeah, I wouldn't say I go as far as endorse it. I mean, it's more honest, though. Yeah, it is more honest. I think that one of the things it's done, and this is a mixed blessing, is that it's made these sorts of people like college educated people without any real job and who if sort of subject to market forces could never really hack it, it's made them a lot less restive. So you describe how in your own municipality, Uppsala, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, a city two thirds the size of Reno, Nevada, employs almost 100 people as quote unquote communicators. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It was like there was an inquiry to see what exactly they did all day. To a certain extent, I'd rather these 100 people were communicators instead of like, I don't know, equity grievance counselors. On the other hand, it, it sounds like they don't have particularly satisfying jobs. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, if you if you take something else that is classically Swedish, IKEA. IKEA is a company that is active in a lot of different countries. And, you know, those countries, they don't speak the same language. Now, having established that, it's embarrassing but completely true fact that a mid-sized Swedish municipality often hires more communicators, social media managers than the entire IKEA corporation. Somehow uh, these municipalities find a way to hire all of these people. And obviously this is just a make-work program to prevent downward mobility and prevent people from getting rested. What we may be describing here are, are two different and probably equally unsustainable solutions to a problem of late-stage capitalism, where most of the goods we need are mass-produced by capital-intensive industrialized processes that maybe don't require a lot of labor inputs, and you've got all of these people who need jobs, is there some other model besides old-school Swedish government pork-barreling and ultra-woke North American-style grievance culture? Is there some other way to go forward? What you're already starting to see in the West is these explosions of working class, you know, productive class people who, as a Canadian trucker put it, work in the real economy rather than the email economy. You've had this happen in Canada. You've had you had it happen in the U.S. before over COVID vaccines. Uh, you're having this happen right now in the Netherlands and before all all of these examples, you had the yellow vests in France. When I joined the left, people were still, you know, in 2009, people were talking about some VTO, WTO meeting that got really rowdy in 1998, because it was such a huge deal. I remember when people got excited about things like trade. And oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, now I think most progressives would be disgusted at anything which limited even by a day or two their amazon deliveries or the components that go into their iphones for a long time you're quite correct to point out that just on the sort of on the merits people say well you know protesting a world trade organization meeting is bad because world trade is great which wasn't the case 12 15 years ago but the other point here is that 12 15 years ago someone protesting for like three days and throwing a molotov uh, that was huge news of, you know, the working class is really getting restive. Maybe they're waking up after their Fukuyama-induced slumber. You have these huge explosions, you know, several times a year now almost in, in Western countries. Well, okay, truckers are melting down. Oh, no, farmers are just going totally wild. 
And all of it is because if you if you really want to boil it down, people in the productive economy are tired of paying more and more tithes. Uh, usually in Europe, all of this is sort of um, situated in basic taxes on things that uh, working class people need to actually work. Gasoline. So, yeah, gasoline. The gas tax in Europe, uh, which, you know, the managerial clause says is it's for the good of everyone. Uh, it goes to things we all need, like the environment. It's really reminiscent of just, you know, a tide. In, in, in medieval society, where it's like, well, if you don't pay 10, 15% of your harvest to the church, we're all going to die. Like, you will literally go to hell and your immortal soul will be damned forever. Right. And it goes to sort of feather the nests of these increasingly um, out of touch moral leaders of the flock or whatever. Well, I mean, the gas tax these days, it doesn't really go to road maintenance, it goes to hiring consultants. If they don't get hired by the government, they're not going to get hired by Ford. They're not going to get hired by Exxon. They're not going to get hired by anyone. And so at the end of the day, this clause imposes a rising cost on ordinary working class people. And all of these sort of freakouts, like the Canadian trucker protests, the stated reason was that these vaccine mandates... But you didn't have to scratch the surface very much to find people complaining about overzealous regulation, rising taxes, environmental fees, and so on, and with no commensurate rise in wages. This class of managers who, who tell us all that, well, you know, we really have to pay them 20% of our income in taxes and fees, because otherwise we're all going to die, like the planet will literally be consumed by fire. These people, they sooner or later hit a ceiling where trying to squeeze the peasantry for more tide money is going to cost more than it generates. What that will produce, and this is behind the immense and incredibly dangerous polarization in the US right now, what will happen and what is already happening in countries where both the working class and the managerial class struggling is this self-reinforcing cycle of violence and polarization. One class says, well, you know, I can't get enough to live. We have to rob uh, someone else. Uh, and we have to pass different political laws to make sure that we get to rob uh, our enemies of stuff. Then, you know, people react on the other side saying, well, you know, all of these liberal demons or whatever, we, we can't keep living like this. We have to push back. The pushback generates its own pushback and off you go. In Sweden, sure, like this is not really in evidence, the same sort of uh, process, because at this point, the nests of all of these communicators and so on are still kind of comfortable. But um, given the sort of economic crisis we're, we're seeing right now and that we already only really felt the first pangs of pain from, every municipality and the Swedish state itself is going to be faced with a choice. Are we going to squeeze the nurses for more income, make life harder for truckers, for farmers, or are we going to say to the managers and the consultants, sorry, you're going to have to work at the local burger joint. If you pick option A, 
screw over the truckers, screw over the um, nurses and so on. Well, I mean, sooner or later, you're going to start seeing the same sort of social explosions that you're seeing in the Netherlands, that you saw in the US, that you saw in Canada, and they're just going to get worse over time. But if you say, oh, well, you know, sorry, uh, I guess you can find a job at McDonald's. I'm sorry, but two environmental consultants is more than enough for a municipality of 20,000 people. If you say that, well, these people, they're going to start really, really messing things up. And they know how to do that because in some ways they're overrepresented in a lot of institutions with a lot of social and political heft in the West. Malcolm Sheyuna is a writer based in Uppsala, Sweden, and sits on the steering committee of Oikos, a think tank located in Sweden. His article in City Journal is entitled Wokeness, the Highest State of Managerialism, and you can read it in the spring 2022 issue or online. Malcolm, thanks so much for joining us on the Quillette podcast. Thanks for having me on. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.